Welcome to The Road to Rural Prosperity, featuring stories about rural Oklahoma and rural America. Guiding us on the journey today is our host, Ron Hayes. Well, thank you, Billy, and welcome to yet another edition of The Road to Rural Prosperity. Today along the road, we are looking out on the highways and byways and in those fields out across our interstate roads, our state highways, our county roads, you're going to see in a lot of cases, you're going to see some beef cattle. And our guest today has talked about beef cattle much of his entire career, and he's done a good job of doing just exactly that. We're talking about Dr. Daryl Peel, renowned agricultural economist in the Department of Agricultural Economics in the Ferguson College of Agriculture at Oklahoma State University. And of course, he's also in Extension. It's that role as Extension Livestock Market Economist that has brought him fame, not just in our state, but all across the country. Cattle producers around the nation want to know what Dr. Peel knows regarding the cattle market. Going to find out a little bit more about his career path leading him to Stillwater and Oklahoma State University. And we're going to talk about some of the big picture issues impacting the cattle industry over the last several decades and what may be out there in the days to come. Our conversation with Dr. Daryl Peel being powered today by the Petroleum Alliance of Oklahoma, the voice of Oklahoma oil and natural gas. And we'll begin our conversation with Daryl Peel here in just a few moments. The Petroleum Alliance represents every segment of the oil and natural gas industry, speaking with one voice when advocating for the interest of its members, landowner partners, and employees. Our mission is to enhance Oklahoma's economy and every segment of the energy industry. PSO provides electricity service to more than half a million customers across Oklahoma. Increasing reliance on natural gas and renewable energy is our future. Cleaner, more affordable energy to power our lives. A strong Oklahoma economy boosted by new jobs, increased revenues for rural communities and schools. Together, our energy is boundless. Howdy neighbors, welcome to another edition of The Road to Rural Prosperity. I'm Ron Hayes. Thank you for being along with us today. And I am really excited to have as, a, as my guest today, Dr. Daryl Peel. Daryl, uh, you and I have talked a lot about markets and all, the, all things cattle markets, all things as far as uh, the beef demand and, and everything else down through the years. I th- in fact, matter of fact, Daryl, Daryl, of course, uh, Extension Livestock Market Economist, Oklahoma State University, I think probably if I added it up, I probably had done more interviews with you than probably any other person. Is that right? Uh, we've done a lot, that's for sure, and for, for quite a number of years now, you bet. Yeah. And, uh, how long have you been at OSU? I am going on 31 years uh, at OSU. This has been my really my only full-time faculty position. I've been a number of other places in, in earlier lives, but from the time I got my Ph.D., this was my first job, and uh, I've been here ever since, and I'm still wow. having fun with it. Wow. <laughs> what, let, let's, you have to go pretty far back to get pre-OSU. But tell me about pre-OSU. What, what you know? Where'd, where'd you grow up? <laughs> well, I, I, I was actually born in West Texas, but my family, my dad was a, a row crop farmer in West Texas and wanted out of that. So when I was a little tyke, we moved to Western Montana. 
and uh, about <laughs> nearly that's to, a little bit of a difference. It, it was quite a change, and and nearly to the Canadian border. Uh, he wanted he wanted out of West Texas. He wanted some place where he could raise a few cows, and the hunting and fishing was closer by. And we achieved that. So that's really where I grew up was in uh, in Western Montana in the Mission Valley. So you uh, you grew up there, but but in in a rural setting. Yeah, grew up on a small farm. Uh, he worked off farm, but we had a small farm. I've been around cattle all my life, and I guess that's really where the roots of my current position uh, came from. And mm-hmm. uh, and so I've been interested and involved in some sense in the cattle industry uh, from from day one, really. Now, did you did you do 4-H or FFA any of that stuff at all? Uh, I was in FFA in high school, uh, not so much in 4-H, but I was in FFA, and uh, in fact, uh, you know, one of my best friends in high school was uh, then became a state officer our first year. We were we were roommates in college at Montana State University a long time ago, so uh, hung out with those guys and actually helped out with the state convention, kind of behind the scenes, and that was as far as I went in FFA, but I really enjoyed that experience a lot. Uh, so tell me about Montana State. Two degrees from Montana State. I uh, went there um, for, for a bachelor's degree. Started out in pre-vet um, because I liked animals. Again, had always liked that. I liked the science. Uh, but uh, as I went through that first year of college, I figured out several things. And one of them was that I took a, an economics class for the first time, had never knew and had never known what economics even was as a science. And by the time I finished that class, I realized that's what I was. That's the way I thought. It made sense to me. And so I really never looked back after that. So got a bachelor's degree at Montana State University in uh, applied economics uh, and ag economics. And then I did a master's degree there. Uh, in uh, Actually, my undergraduate was farm and ranch management, technically. And then my master's degree was applied economics. And so uh, finished that there. And for, uh, from there, you, I guess at that point, did you leave Montana? I did. I got a job with Colorado State University uh, with a master's degree and moved to southeastern Colorado, uh, just north of the Oklahoma Panhandle then, uh, working for the range science department at Colorado State University, managing a range research station for them. And I was hired because I was an economist. Uh, I was not a range, uh, range scientist. I learned a fair amount of range in a few years there. Um, but uh, they wanted somebody with some economics to help them out on some of the uh, analysis of things they did on the research center there. So I spent uh, nearly four years in, in southeastern Colorado, mm. and that's really where I learned about the stocker business and specifically the wheat pasture grazing, which uh, really came to serve me well then when uh, a few years later when I got the opportunity to come to Oklahoma State. And, and the, you know, the stocker industry has been a special part of my career um, and and uh, and that early training there in, in southeastern Colorado played a big role in that. That's uh, that's an interesting area. That that's uh, among other things where the farm strike movement uh, developed way back when. Uh, in fact, when I went to uh, southeastern Colorado was just a few months after the big uh, uh, f- the, the the farm foreclosure sale and the infamous uh, American Ag movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to call it a riot. Uh, and <laughs> um, and so that. That was that was a it was a really interesting time to be there because it really highlighted a lot of those sort of fundamental issues in mm-hmm. agriculture, uh, and to and to move right into the middle of that at that point in time was that was probably also a good experience. It wasn't always fun, but it was a, probably a good experience for me. That was lit- literally the uh, ground zero for AAM. Yeah, yeah. I, I you know the research center I managed was uh, fifteen or twenty miles from the headquarters, the national headquarters of the American Ag Movement. So. 
Wow. Way back when. So, Way back when. So uh, where did you do your uh, doctorate work? My Ph.D. is from the University of Illinois in agricultural economics. So after a few years in, in Colorado, and it was kind of at that point always in my mind to get a Ph.D., um, I could have done it at Colorado State and kind of checked on it, but, you know, um, making it fit with a full-time job was going to be a, a challenge, and I was nearly 300 miles from campus down there in southeastern Colorado. So all of that was going to be hard, and when I got done with a Ph.D., I was going to need to move anyway. So uh, my <laughs> wife and I talked it over and said, why don't we do it? So we, we uh, you know, I applied to a number of different schools but wound up going to the University of Illinois for my Ph.D. We, were, we lived there for a couple of years. So you did that. Uh, what, I mean, obviously, some, something economics is what you're working on for a Ph.D. Yeah, I did. Um, you know, it was, it was in agricultural economics and um, – and my, you know, my Ph.D. work was on a large, uh, you know, simulation model of really the entire livestock sector of the U.S. It was actually used in some policy analysis things and so on. One of the kind of interesting twists on that was after two years there, I'd completed coursework, did my prelims and all of that stuff. My major professor from, from Illinois had taken a job in the meantime at Auburn University, and uh, he continued to be my major advisor but he said, you know, you can stay in Illinois and do your work, uh, or you can come down to Auburn and I'll put you on the staff here just on a, you know, on a, as a research associate, but essentially doing the same thing I would have done as a graduate research associate at, or assistant at, uh, at uh, Illinois. So uh, we packed up and moved again to Auburn University, and so my last year of, of uh, dissertation work was done at Auburn. Then he and I both went back to Illinois. My degree is from Illinois, so I was never more than an employee uh, at Auburn, but that was another year of really good experience. And so, you, boy, you've almost seen every part of the country within your uh, educational uh, travels there. You know, and, and, and it's, it, I think that's very telling because I think that has served me well. One of the things about the cattle industry is it's so big and diverse. Mm -hmm. It lays on lots of different environments. Very different. Uh, it operates very differently in different parts of the country. And I really think that experience of, of seeing it in a lot of different environments has really been helpful to me to understand. I think a lot of producers... Uh, just because they don't have the opportunity to get that experience, uh, you know, we all kind of want to think the whole world looks like whatever we see out our window. Mm -hmm. But in fact, the cattle industry is much bigger and much more diverse than that. And so that's that was a good experience to 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 uh, live and and work in several different environments. So, Doctor Peel, yep, University of Illinois, looking for a job. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, as I was working on uh, my dissertation work, I started thinking about employment, and I sat down and made a list of about uh, 10 or 15 different universities that I thought I might be interested in working at. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there were other mechanisms, a little more formal, I suppose, for, for looking for a job, but I just fired off a bunch of blind letters to department heads around the country. Oklahoma was one of those, big cattle industry, um, and... Uh, and I sent him a, a letter and a, and a resume, and I got a nice letter back from the department head here. He said, thank you for your letter. Uh, we don't have anything open right now, but I'll keep you in mind. About six or eight months later, I was attending our uh, national uh, Ag Econ professional meetings, and they mm -hmm. always have an employment center there. Right. And I was signed up to go in that, mm -hmm. and when I walked in the door... 
there was a faculty member from Oklahoma State waiting for me, and he says, I've been waiting to talk to you. Uh, we have a job potentially open, and you know something about the stocker industry. And so uh, <laughs> one thing led to another, <laughs> and, uh, and I found myself here at Oklahoma State in 1989. Who hired you? Uh, the department head then was Jim Osborne. Okay. And uh, the guy I'm talking about, you'll recognize as well, was Jim Trapp, who uh, was a faculty <laughs> member and a counterpart of mine for many years when I came here. In fact, I've told people, and, and I mean it very seriously, from, from the literature I studied as a graduate student, uh, Jim Trapp and Clem Ward were two of the reasons I wanted to come to Oklahoma and work on livestock marketing because uh, that was pretty good stuff. And, and we did a lot of things together. And then, of course, later Jim was uh, a department head and then mm-hmm. eventually the uh, extension boss here in Oklahoma, so I worked with him and under him for in a number of different ways. That's right. And so, you know, you, you, uh, you decided to make the move. Yep. Uh, obviously, you had a little inkling of what it would be like to live in a, in a state like Oklahoma, coming from as a, as, a, as a child from Texas, then the Colorado experience and whatnot. But from Illinois, that is a little bit of a culture shock. <laughs> Well, probably the bigger culture shock for me was going to Illinois. <laughs> and I remember telling somebody, I think I described it as east, and they laughed at me because uh, that, was a, that was the farthest east I'd ever been, I think, when I went to Illinois. Uh, but, uh, yeah, coming to Oklahoma was really coming back home. I was glad to be back west of the Mississippi where I'm most comfortable just because of the way I grew up. And, um, and so, you know, there's uniquenesses everywhere. But, yeah, I've, I've felt comfortable in Oklahoma really from the, from the beginning and, and uh, haven't looked back. Uh, you mentioned Clem Ward. Yep. Who was who was the extension economist that was preceded you? I've, I'm, I'm tr- I've been trying to remember that who that was. Uh, a number of years. I'm going to have to work on this. Uh, it had been vacant for a number of years. Okay. Um, oh shoot. I can't yeah. come up with it at the moment. I've reached that point in my life where it takes a little longer to come up with names. It'll come to me in a minute. The, but uh, there had been a livestock marketing specialist here. Left some pretty big shoes to fill. Uh-huh. But the position had been open for a number of years. Now, Kim Anderson kind of covered this stuff. So he was doing both livestock and grain marketing for a number of years when I came. And he was really glad to see me come. <laughs> and and he and I did a lot together. And he was really a strong mentor for me when I first started in extension here. At, uh, uh, at OSU. Now, back back in that in that time period, uh, by that point we were uh, we were at the Agronet, yeah. And uh, and when you when you first arrived, and uh, we had a daily show that we called the beef uh, beef break even, and so we we had we had a insatiable appetite to talk to economists, <laughs> and so we we I had the circuit. Uh, of, of people that we were talking to, so I know I, I kind of remember when you you arrived. I was very glad to see OSU had somebody that I could talk to a regular basis about the the cattle markets and the economics of all that day and age, and uh, that was that was uh, that was very welcome news to see uh, you arrive. You know, I've enjoyed this position for a lot of reasons, but one of them has been the uh, the fun I've had in terms of the media part of this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a, an important part of it. Um, it's a little embarrassing when I think back to then in terms of what I was like and, you know, all of that. But uh, in terms of what I thought I knew about the cattle industry and, and, <laughs> and 30 years later, I'm still uh, learning to appreciate how much I don't understand. But, but yeah, I've enjoyed the media stuff. And, and it's changed so much over the years. Uh, you know, yeah. back then we used to do a 15-minute weekly radio tape. 
uh, with Ag Communications, and mm-hmm. that went out to a bunch of different places. Was Jim Stone still and, here when you when you arrived? No, I was. I worked Bob, with Bob Reisbeck. Bob Reisbeck for years and oh, years, yes. and uh, and then of course we did SunUp as a fifteen minute uh, uh-huh. five day a week show back then. That's right. And and, and after a few years, uh, there was a period of time for. I don't know, two or three, maybe four years where once a month that was uh, live. Uh, Kim and I did that live as the Market Watch uh, mm-hmm. special edition with uh, with uh, Bob Reisbeck as the host. And so uh, <laughs> 7 o'clock in the morning live on public, t- you know, ETA. And um, and again, that was so. I've done a little live television, lots of uh, lots of stuff on on TV, radio, and print media over many years. Right. We are talking with Extension Livestock Market Economist. I know that's sort of officially your title, but uh, I know you've got a much longer, uh, more involved, uh, a proper title uh, that includes you the uh, the chair that you uh, represent, the endowed chair that you represent. But we're talking Daryl Peel today uh, from Oklahoma State University here on the road to rural prosperity and we will continue here in just a few moments the petroleum alliance represents every segment of the oil and natural gas industry speaking with one voice when advocating for the interest of its members landowner partners and employees our mission is to enhance oklahoma's economy and every segment of the energy industry The Oklahoma Rural Water Association. They've been representing water and wastewater systems across Oklahoma since 1970. The Oklahoma Rural Water Association was formed to enhance the quality of life in rural Oklahoma through the development and delivery of services and programs for the benefit of ORWA members and the rural people they serve. Welcome back. We are on the road to rural prosperity. We are on campus at Oklahoma State University in Stillwater. There are students here, by gosh and by golly, uh, even in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, education is continuing on. It's a little different, I know. Lots of masks everywhere. And, uh, Daryl, you know, t- tell me a little bit about, uh, I guess, what you, you arrived, what, 1989, 1990, somewhere in that time period, 1989, right? 1989, yeah. Okay, so you, you've been uh, uh, through uh, a lot of changes here uh, on campus at Oklahoma State University, a lot of changes in the cattle business as well. And I thought we might spend a few minutes talking about those some of those changes that you've observed uh, in the business, uh, cattle business, both in our state, but uh, you know, more of a regional, national basis as well. What, what's different today? Oh my gosh! You know things have changed a lot, and 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 I guess I can put it in the context of the way my job has changed over time. I think it kind of reflects some of that. Um, you know, when I came here and took this position, uh, first of all, nobody told me that international stuff was going to play near the role that it does today. And so we've watched uh, the international trade scene for cattle and beef continue to grow over time, and for meats and, and protein in general. And so that's a much different situation. Um, you know, I happened to come in just a few years uh, before NAFTA was coming along, and mm-hmm. so I managed to to kind of fall into that, and, and that's really where I started uh, learning a lot about the international trade stuff. And that's been an ongoing thing for me, uh, a work in progress, obviously, and, and so much dynamics in that. Right. Now, you, you've obviously become uh, one of the experts when it comes to the Oklahoma or U.S. cattle scene on Mexico. You've actually gone to Mexico multiple times and interacted with the cattle industry down there. 
Yeah, I did from, you know, from starting uh, rather coincidentally in some ways, but I got very interested in it and, uh, and re- recognized the growing importance of that. And so, uh, um, did a lot of work in Mexico and, and at some, at one point, um, in 2001, uh, did a year sabbatical where my family and I lived in Mexico and I devoted that entire year to studying the Mexican cattle industry and its relationship, particularly with the U S. And so that was a, that was a really good experience as well. So let's back up uh, to some some of those differences between the cattle industry as you uh, were working uh, in those early years all the way back to your time at uh, southeastern Colorado, then getting your doctorate and then joining the faculty here at Oklahoma State University. Cattle industry then versus the cattle industry now. Boy, you know, it's changed in so many ways. Again, uh, the cattle are different. The cattle operations are different. The markets are different. Um, you know, probably one of the biggest things I guess I would observe from the from the first few years, kind of going into the 90s, the cattle industry, particularly at the fed cattle level, was still an average business. You know, mm-hmm. we sold cattle on the average. We sold, uh, you know, entire show lists on a week-to-week basis out of the feedlot at one price. And, uh, and I remember in those years, there was a lot of talk about value-based marketing, and, and we did eventually develop that. And, of course, now we, we trade a lot of cattle. Um, now, it, it's, it's maybe a mixed blessing. Some people would certainly view it as a mixed blessing, where we trade a lot of cattle now on a formula or a grid basis. Um, and so, you, you know, you've got some other issues that come with that, but we have clearly changed value signals in the industry. And as a result, the cattle have changed a lot. They've gotten bigger over time. That's a genetic thing. And, and we've certainly proved uh, uh, that we have the capability scientifically to continue to make these cattle bigger. But they're bigger and the quality is better than it was. And so uh, we've seen a lot of change in quality of these cattle over time. The other area for me that was not part of my job at the time I took it, at least I didn't recognize how much it was going to be, and that's to know something about the meat side. Mm-hmm. We talked about uh, the cattle industry. Beef demand was a very aggregate concept that we would look at as economists, kind of one plot, uh, one diagram uh, showing quantity and price of beef at the retail level. And I have devoted so much time over the last 25 years, 20 to 25 years, at learning a little bit more about the meat end of things and, and breaking and understanding that there's a multitude of markets behind that, that uh, you know, if you aggregate it to the carcass level or to the live animal level, um, the meat industry uh, is, is such an important part of that, and it's, and it's so critical to know something about that these days. I know that uh, what I think maybe even earlier this year, it's almost like another lifetime ago, we sat down and we talked about the study that you'd helped put together that talked about the number of products that a carcass really becomes. That's exactly right. Um, you know, again, the more you get into it, and I, I think that's one of our challenges in this industry at any level, is to understand just how many products are involved, how complex this industry is. Is And I've said for years, I make this statement, I can't prove it definitively, but, but I make the claim, and, and, and nobody's been able to give me a better example. I, I claim that the U.S. cattle and beef industry in total, as it operates, is the most complex set of markets on the planet. And I truly believe that's true because at the production level, we've got all these multiple stages. We're all over the country in different environments. 
but then we get into the meat level, it's perishable, and we turn that one animal into literally many thousands of different products uh, ultimately. And so when you put all that together, it's a massively complex industry to try to get your hands around. And that's a challenge, but it's also one of the more fun things for me is to continually try to learn a little bit more about it. I guess uh, when we've had these, uh, what some people have called the black swan events, the the, the Holcomb fire, right. and then the uh, the pandemic itself uh, earlier this year, COVID nineteen, uh, the disruption in that supply chain after the packing plant. That has been one of the things that uh, has probably caused a, a lot of uh, disruption further back down, ending up to the cattle prices that folks have received. It, it has, and, and I think there's a couple reasons. You know, if you go back to the Holcomb fire in 2019, um, we've seen things like that before. We've had packing plants burn in the past. We've had, you know, for various reasons, plants have gone offline. But for many, many years, we had sort of chronic excess capacity in the packing industry. Over time, that has uh, dwindled a little bit. And, of course, in the last few years, cattle numbers have grown in a cyclical expansion. And the combination of those two means that by 2019, we were in much closer balance than we had been in probably 30 or more years. So the fire really illustrated that we were pushing our limits on packing capacity. So that was a challenge. We got through that fairly easy. It was just one plant. COVID-19 is a whole different world. <laughs> we have never seen anything like that that uh-huh. could take so many plants offline or severely reduce their production at the same time. And so that really opened up a lot of things. Um, and it really illustrated a lot of the complexities that we're talking about and a lot of the challenges to try to understand this industry. I guess one of the things that uh, we, we've seen fairly recently uh, is the uh, is the U.S. Meat Export Federation talking about uh, we've had problems getting enough of the variety meats, you know, successfully shipped into the global market because we don't have labor at these plants still to be able to do all the processing we'd like to do. We're getting the carcasses through, but we don't necessarily able to get everything uh, done, uh, including those, uh, you know, the, the beef hearts and the tongues and all those kind of things. That's right. And and actually, you know, we we talked about packing capacity as a physical thing, and it is that. Obviously, it's the, it's the infrastructure. But really, labor issues have been one of the more chronic problems in the entire food industry in mm-hmm. recent years. And it runs the gamut from the packing plant level, even down on production level. Um, sometimes, you know, feedlots have trouble finding employees and, and all of that and, and in other ag industries. And then all the way through uh, packing plants and processing plants uh, have continuing struggles with labor. And then it goes right on through to food service and all of the other industries. So uh, that's been a real challenge as well. Now, uh, kind of majoring on uh, kind of the more recent part of your career here at Oklahoma State University, uh, literally, uh, you kind of got thrust into a a bit of a limelight situation uh, earlier this year as this pandemic hit. Uh, You were put in charge of a task force to look at uh, what in the world had happened to the cattle market. (laughs) I did. I got asked by the National Cattlemen's Beef Association to put together uh, some of the initial work trying to estimate some of the impacts of course we've had uh, as a result of the pandemic and all of the uh, economic issues associated with it we've had lots of stimulus activities various uh, several different uh, pieces of legislation so I was asked to to lead that group and, and kind of make some estimates on those impacts and and uh, and it was a fairly uh, you know visible kind of a thing we operated on uh, very
very quickly, but we turned out I think some pretty good use, some 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 pretty good work in in a fairly short period of time uh, with the help of some great colleagues around the country. And you were trying to give a, a real uh, some actual numbers of how much damage had been done. Uh, to two producers. That's right. We were estimating what the damages were, and and of course uh, that was looking ahead. So it was an estimate, um, but we you know we utilized uh, kind of all the available information and and put out those estimates as we were trying to figure out. Then uh, as a part of that process, in terms of the policy side, trying to figure out how much uh, economic help the industry really needed. I guess uh, it was I had to give you some at least some satisfaction that uh, USDA. Uh, looked at those numbers and said, uh, yep, uh, and uh, a lot of that information uh, was uh, actually a part of the uh, Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, CFAP. Well, I think it was, I think it did play into it, definitely. I think uh-huh. they looked at those numbers, and, and uh, you know, we were pretty sure going into it that there wouldn't be enough money. There, I don't think there's ever enough money to cover everything. Yeah. But when you look at sort of the way that money that was available was allocated, um, the beef industry did get a significant share of that, reflecting the kinds of estimates that we came up with. And, again, the size of this industry and the number of moving parts, there were a lot of impacts, and so we were glad to see those uh, considered in that process. Along the way, uh, I think a lot of folks said, hey, you know, uh, uh, this guy Peel must, must know something. He's, uh, they, he's headed up this task force. Uh, we need to have him talk to our group. You, you suddenly had a lot of appearances virtually that you had to, uh, had to uh, interact in. You know, I, I do quite a few meetings on a normal basis, but yeah, that really opened it up. And particularly, anytime you get into a situation that starts to really directly impact consumers, then all of a sudden the media requests, the meeting requests. And so, yeah, I did I did at least a year's worth of work in about eight or nine weeks in terms of the normal <laughs> amount of media uh, kinds of things that I do and the number of meetings. And uh and so it was extremely busy from about uh, late March through June uh, was was without a doubt. the and, and, and ironically, I wasn't traveling as much as I normally do. Right. I wasn't traveling, but I probably did more meetings and more work during that time period than any time in my career. Yeah, I think your voice and face was seen a lot of places for sure. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, it, you know, again, it was. And, 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 and in terms of kind of the visual media where the public sort of sees you, yeah. that, that only happened when you get into these situations where consumers really start to be very directly and obviously impacted by a situation. That only happens every once in a while, but it was sure there in this case. Anything that you really remember about those interactions with the consumer media? Well, it's always a bit of a challenge when you're, you know, I've I've been fortunate. I've worked with media for many, many years, Mm -hmm. but most of the ag media is relatively knowledgeable about ag. And so you start with a different sort of an assumption. When you're working with the general media, they don't understand ag. And so so I did a lot of things that involve sort of backing up to uh, ag 101 in terms of how, how ag works, how markets work, how economics work. And, and this thing illustrated economic issues in a way where for consumers, for producers, for almost everybody, we saw things about how markets really work that was a bit of a surprise to some people and, and sometimes a little confusing. Uh, and so it, there was a lot of calls to sort of be able to explain why we were seeing the things happen that were happening and why they made sense in an economic context. We've got uh, today, we've got the, the price discovery conversation probably at a higher level 
than we've uh, than we've had it in recent memory. It's, it's been there for a while. You know, you, you many, many you alluded, years. You yeah. alluded to the show list back in the day that all went you know at one price. Right. Uh, that's not the, the case anymore. And uh, the the question of uh, how do we have price discovery? How do we have, you know how do we get enough negotiated sales? Uh, I know that that you've you've really had to look at that in a lot of different directions. You know how 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 do you see uh, us being able to, to tackle this thing? Well, there's some you know there are some concerns. These markets have gotten thinner over time. By thinner, I mean we don't have as much sort of uh, publicly reported uh, open market transactions. Um, and so that's a concern. Economists have studied thin markets. That's what we call them, thin markets for many, many years. And, and, uh, and there's a couple of things that come out of that that, uh, you know, one is that, uh, you know, the real question from an economist standpoint is how thin is too thin? Mm-hmm. There's a point where the market just doesn't function very well when those prices that you get are not representative of the underlying market. That's uh, And so we're worried about that issue. We've studied it from the standpoint of where that issue is. The second one that comes out of a lot of literature in a lot of different industries is that that level is probably a lot smaller percentage of trade than most people think. So it's it's a challenge to producers to say, mm-hmm. look, we've got some legitimate concerns about uh, price discovery and thin markets. Um, but the fact of the matter is there's not really any compelling evidence that we have a chronic problem with that most of the time in the cattle industry. Now, in specific weeks, in specific locations, yes, we've you know we've gotten thin enough where it, it's probably a very brief problem, but but it's a source of concern and certainly one that we look at uh, going forward. And then the other one is to sort of understand if we you know why do we do what we do, and if we want to do something different, there there will be implications of that. Mm-hmm. And so it falls to economists to say, look, if you don't like what we have and you want to change it. You're going to be interfering in the way these markets work. That usually means there's some costs involved, and that may be a good thing. That may be something we want to do, but you need to really make sure you understand what those costs are. Right, and I guess uh, the question really is is really starting to boil down more and more. There, there's always been a group that said we want, you know, mandatory mandatory uh, 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 ways to mandate uh, the, the packers having to, to pay yep. negotiated prices or, or buy cattle on the open market type of thing. Uh, others are saying, hey, uh, the way we are, we're doing it today gives us the most return on those animals, the most value for those, uh, those higher quality carcasses. And a real struggle between uh, letting the market do it and letting the government tell you how, how you're going to do it. Well, I think that's a fundamental choice that we have to make as an industry. And, you know, and as an economist, it's not really our job to say you should or shouldn't, uh, uh, you know, pursue a certain policy. Right. But it is our job, I think, to say if you want to pursue this alternative or that alternative or this other alternative, here are what we think the implications of those are. And so that's where I spend a lot of my time. Uh, yeah, and there are some real trade-offs. Again, we've we've clearly benefited from the way the industry's evolved over the last 20 to 25 years uh, in some ways. But it comes with some other issues that we do have to deal with, and so we kind of have to shift our focus and recognize the trade-offs, and that's typically what most of these things involve is some sort of Mm trade-off. And then uh, as an industry, we kind of collectively have to decide where do we want to land on on those trade-offs and, uh, and, uh, you know, which which way do we want to position ourselves. We're talking to livestock market economist Dr. Daryl Peel. Again, on the little bit past the livestock, on the meat side, I know – one of the conversations you had a lot of, uh, of conversations with uh, producers about and others as well is uh, MCOOL, Country of Origin Labeling. That's right. It's- 
<laughs> I'm not quite sure. You know, what, it, it, it was exhausting because there was so much passion. Well, there is. There's a lot of passion. There's and and it, you know, there's a number of issues there. I mean, it seems an obvious thing on the one hand to say more information is better than less information in terms mm-hmm. of what consumers have. But the economic reality is information is costly. It's not free. And uh, and so you really, again, as an economist, you try to say, here's the value of additional information relative to what people, you know, want and what they're willing to pay for versus, uh, uh, you know, the, the versus not having as much mm-hmm. of that information. And so MCOOL was a challenge. Again, I think it comes out of a lot of people's uh, really not understanding just how complex the meat markets are in the beef industry and so when you start thinking about uh, turning that one animal into thousands and thousands of different products ultimately uh, those challenges now of all of a sudden trying to track and verify origin and and or any other attribute that you might want to track in those things becomes a really big challenge and it has costs and what is the value of of that information you've uh, been a uh obviously an economist but you've also on the extension side you've interacted that uh, part of your job is to interact it is to is to be that uh, that face if you please of of osu uh you know have you enjoyed it i love it uh i really have thoroughly enjoyed it um you know i i I, to me, and everybody should feel this way about whatever your job is, right? I hope everybody gets to do this, but I, I really feel I have the best job in the world in a number of ways. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, the, the, uh, the ability to work with the, the cattle and beef industry, uh, work with producers, work with uh, policymakers and, and industry leaders, and, and have, you know, and I can't imagine growing up as a country boy in western Montana, the opportunities I've had to, <laughs> the people I've gotten to meet and the interactions mm-hmm. I've had, it still boggles my mind, frankly. Uh, that's the one hand. Being on campus as a faculty member and, and working with students, uh, ag kids are the best in the world, you know. And I really relate to them because uh, uh, ag kids come from a good place. They usually have the right backgrounds, the right work ethics, the right um, in, in the mm-hmm. notions. If they have any limitations, it's just like I was at that age. They just haven't seen very much of the world, and they don't really understand how big the world is. And and anytime we can expose them to that, I think that's a it's a good thing. It scares mom and dad sometimes, but I think it's a good thing. And and those kids go out and I've been around long enough now. I've got lots of former students that are in you know really important industry leadership roles and yeah. policy roles. And that's really satisfying when you get to think about that and, and to have a continuing relationship with those students. Kind of expanded family, right? It really is. Uh, you know, I've been called by students Papa Peel for many years, and <laughs> and uh, and I really feel like they're my kids. And and after a few thousand of them, I just got to be a grandfather here not too uh, too terribly long ago. But it was kind of a natural that I would really literally be Papa Peel finally. Um, <laughs> but I feel like I've been Papa Peel for many many years to a lot of students. And uh, you, you've impacted a lot of lives that's for sure one other thing you've done that i thought was kind of fascinating and uh, you've actually had me on that side of the microphone as well is that you uh, and a buddy of yours have put together a little podcast tell me about that (laughs) 
You know, we have a lot of fun with that. So, uh, and, and actually, we, we were just talking about students, and that's where this came from. Uh, uh, my partner in that is Charlie Amos, and uh, he is a former student from quite a number of years ago now, and we stayed in touch. And we're not student-teacher anymore. We're just friends. We're colleagues. We stayed in touch. We talked and, and uh, had a lot of common interests, but also enough difference to have some interesting conversations at times. And, and at some point in all of that, uh, Charlie said, let's start a podcast. And so we do this thing. It's not, an, uh, it's not a job-related thing. It's something we do personally, mm-hmm. although it winds up having some job connections to it. But uh, uh, So we, we do the Farm to Market podcast, uh, and we've been doing that now going on two years. And uh, we've just had a lot of fun with it. I think for me, it's it's a bit of an outlet. It's a place to talk about things that I don't get to talk about in my job. Charlie and I are both kind of history buffs, and so we cover some food-related things, some agriculture straight up. Some of them are, you know, could easily be an extension-type presentation. Uh, and some of them are history or rural history, rural culture. We just cover uh, anything that comes to mind. We have a lot of fun with it. We've had a lot of fun talking to different people. And uh, and so it's, yeah, it's just something we do on the side. So what, what what's the most interesting or, or fun topic you think uh, has come out of the podcast? Oh my goodness, we've had uh, we've had One so many different things. Yeah, we've had a lot of different things. I, I think some of what you know, there's not a strict theme on this. Like I said, it kind of goes different directions. But if there's an underlying sort of a general trend, I think what we're trying to do as much as anything is is expose kind of a non-ag audience and give them a chance to understand ag and food a little bit better. And so for me, a lot of the ones we've done where I think we are uh, sort of uh, allowing. Uh, consumers uh, to really understand a little bit better where food comes from. And so we've done some things on food preferences, food demand, sort of the reality of going from a garden to a full-blown food system and all of the implications of that. Again, kind of why does agriculture work the way it works in this country? And, and, you know, what's good about that and what are the challenges that go along with that? Right. Talking today with livestock market economist Dr. Daryl Peel, Oklahoma State University. Daryl, appreciate your time today uh, here on the road to rural prosperity. We're uh, we're trying to, to kind of showcase uh, some of the things that help make Oklahoma a top ten state, and and uh, your career, I think, is a good example of uh, of how uh, excellence can uh, can impact a lot of folks. So well, thank you so much. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Daryl Peel with us today on the road. I'm Ron Hayes. We'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us for today's Road to Rural Prosperity podcast. You can join the conversation about how rural Oklahoma can prosper by looking for us on Facebook. And you can find our growing number of conversations on our website, ruralprosperityok.com. The Road to Rural Prosperity podcast series is a production of the Radio Oklahoma Ag Network and OklahomaFarmReport.com. Proud to be a part of the family of the Funk Companies.